a point. But as we kind of grew out of this, this church idea, we realized we weren't really making a difference. We were making a point. We were taking a stand. We were drawing a line in the sand. We, we were preaching against, you know, we, we stood on the truth and we were against everything. We made a point. But we very, very seldomly, maybe very, very little ever made a difference. And here's something you need to know, and this is the only thing you get from this message <clears throat> because it's so oppressively hot. I get that. Here's something you need to know and you can just bring home with you today. It's always easier to make a point than it is to make a difference. It's always easier to make a point. And if you're a parent, you know this, right? Your kids misbehave and you sit them down at the table and <clears throat> you say, hey, now look at me in the eyes and give me your undivided attention. And you start pointing the finger. You know what I'm talking about. We've all done this. And it's blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Now go to your room and think about that. And they kind of scamper off upstairs and you're sitting at the table and you kind of get your chest gets puffed up and you're all proud. Like, I just told them. They're, just, they're sitting up there and they're just pondering the wisdom of dad, of mom. Right, and when you go upstairs and you kind of sneak a peek in the door, they're like sitting in front of their screen like this. But you think, man, I did it. I made a point. I took a stand. I stood up for what was right. I told them how it had to be. I didn't let them interrupt me. I made a point. And then we kind of wonder when our kids grow up why we never see a difference in their behavior, why they continue to behave, and they continue to act, and they continue to do things that we've kind of taught them or, or along the way or made points about along the way that they shouldn't be doing. It's because it's so much easier to make a point than it is to make a difference. Making a difference is hard. Making a difference takes time. Making a difference is messy. Making a point is easy. Almost anyone can make a point. You can yell and make a point. But to make a difference it takes time. See, but we decided early on when we did this church that we weren't going to be the point-making church, that we wanted to be a difference-making church, that we wanted to shift away from, from kind of throwing the, these grenades and uh, cultural grenades and political grenades and, and being a part of just, we're just going to blast it and make a point and stand up for what's right. We decided we kind of wanted to model something we saw in Jesus and we want to make a difference. And yes, it might take a little longer. Yes, it might be a little harder. It might be a little messy. It might be a little uneasy at times. There's going to have to be a lot of conversations along the way. But I would much rather make a difference than make a point because I've been a part of making a point. And it puts you against everyone and everything. And that's not what we see in the life of Jesus. There are plenty of churches that just sit back and they're just thrilled to lob those grenades in culture. They're just thrilled to lob those cultural and those political and those truth grenades and just sit back and watch it blow up and hurt people. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be a leader of that church. I don't want to be a part of that church. The team that started this church, they didn't want to be a part of it. And my guess is if you're here, you don't want to be a part of that either. And here's the interesting thing. As we kind of look through the book of Acts, as we look through the gospels, as we look through the stories about Paul, we see that that's not what they did at all. And then it took about 300 years after the life and the death of Jesus, after the death of Paul, it took about 300 years. And Christianity, when they started to get this thing right, this idea that we're going to talk about this morning, they completely changed the nation. It completely turned Rome around. Rome went from being a pagan nation to being a Christian nation. Christians went from being persecuted to being uplifted and, and to being seen as heroes of the faith because they began to get this one thing right. See, it's way easier to make a point. But those Christians decided, you know, we're just going to get this thing right. And we're going to make a difference. And it took some time. But they changed a nation from the inside out. 
because they decided it's way more important to make a difference than it is to make a point. So we're going to look at some of the things that I've kind of observed, that you can kind of observe as you read through the life of Jesus and you begin to see his interactions with, with certain groups of people. And then we're going to look at two passages of Scripture. I'll tell you some stories along the way, and we'll, we'll wrap up. Here's the first one that you can observe. <clears throat> they, they constantly, this is Jesus, the Apostle Paul, some of the disciples, they constantly leaned relationally in the direction of those they disagreed with the most. They constantly leaned directionally in, in the, the, the direction of those that they tended to disagree with the most. They, they, they were constantly building relational bridges with people who disagreed with them, who didn't believe the way they believed. And we've got a, a great story of this in Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul is, is in Athens, and he walks into this the kind of Greek nation, and there are idols everywhere, idols to all of these gods, this, this, like, this pantheon of Greek gods. And Paul is a Jewish boy. You know, he was raised a Jewish boy, and in this Jewish culture, they didn't have images of God. So much so that, that the authors, uh, the people who wrote and like rewrote the, New Te- the Old Testament, they would oftentimes leave out the name of God because they were worried that by even writing it, that could become an image of God, and they would worship it and, be, and violate the law of God. So they didn't have images. They didn't have anything that kind of represented the physical identity of who God was. And Paul's this Jewish kid, and he walks into this this Greek nation, and he sees all these images of false gods. And he thinks, you know what, I'm going to preach. And what does Paul decide to preach on? It would be so easy to preach against idolatry, wouldn't it? And he'd be right. (coughs) We know you shouldn't worship the image of a god. But Paul doesn't preach idolatry. Paul knows, and he's smart enough to know, that if I go that route, I will make a point. But I'll make very little difference. Paul decides to preach on the resurrection of Jesus. And he begins to talk about Jesus and who he was, and that he died, and that he came back to life, and he set us free from our sins. And when they're done, all these Greek philosophers, all these Greek religious people, they kind of laugh at him, and they go their own way, except for a few who say, Paul, that's incredible. And will you come back tomorrow and will you begin to teach us more because we want to know more? And it took a little longer. And it was a little more difficult. But Paul began to make a difference because he began to lean in the direction of those people that he disagreed with the most. We see Jesus do that all the time in his ministry. The second thing we see is that they were constantly at odds with the religious right of their day. And this is so important. This is so important, especially if you, if you attend a church <coughs> for the Apostle Paul and for Jesus. Jesus was constantly at odds with the religious right, with the people across the religious aisle. But if you compared their, their theology, if you compared this group, the Pharisees, they were kind of like, like the enemies of Jesus. If you compared the Pharisees' theology and you compared Jesus' theology, they would almost be exactly the same. They totally believed in one God. They believed that God created everything. They believed that everything was there to glorify God. They believed on the moral and the ethical guidelines of the Old Testament. They agreed on the Hebrew law. They agreed on almost everything except their approach. So Jesus and these Pharisees, with the same theology, were constantly at odds with each other because of the way they approached people because of their beliefs. He was constantly at odds with the religious right of their day. They would have agreed on theology, but they would have completely disagreed on approach. The next thing, number three, is they were not concerned about guilt by association. Now, this is not a good parenting strategy. <coughs> Parents, I'm not encouraging you to go home and t- t- teach your kids. I don't care who you hang out with. I don't care who you associate with. 
But what we see in the life of Jesus is that he didn't care a whole lot about guilt by association. He didn't care what people thought about who he hung out with. As a matter of fact, we see the very opposite. The people that you would think Jesus would hang out with, the Pharisees, he spent very little time with and more often than not was at odds with them. But the people who were nothing like Jesus, the people who who tended to not believe the way Jesus believed, he spent almost all of his time with them. So much so that if you read the New Testament at all, you know Jesus had a reputation. He had a reputation for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, for being a friend with people who had nothing, who who no one wanted to be a part of in that society because he was not concerned about guilt by association. Do you know who was concerned about guilt by association? The Pharisees. The Pharisees, I mean, I mean, understand this. The Pharisees falsely um, imprisoned Jesus. They had uh, uh, an illegal case against him. They hired false witnesses against him. And then they went to Pilate with Jesus. And Pilate says, okay, come on in. It's, oh, no, no, we can't come in, Pilate. We can't come in because what, what will people think? And it's like, seriously, you hypocrites. After all you just did, you're going to kill an innocent man, but you're worried about appearances. Well, Pilate, if we come in, people are going to think, you know, we're like you, and we can't allow people to think that way. So, so no, we, we can't come in. You can just take Jesus, and you can crucify him on your own. Jesus was never concerned about guilt by association. But his, the Pharisees, the religious right, the people who like to make a point, very much were. Number four, they refused to be dragged into debates that distracted them from the primary issues. Now, this is huge. They refuse to be dragged into debates or discussions or to, sometimes even to answer questions, questions that would distract them from their primary issues. We see Jesus do this a lot. Oftentimes, he was asked questions, and he didn't give direct answers to them. One time, as a matter of fact, he's with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees ask him a question about John the Baptist. And they say, hey, Jesus, and they're trying to trip Jesus up. Hey, hey, hey Jesus, who, whose authority do you teach in? Jesus, like, like you, you're doing teaching all this new stuff. You're teaching all this kind of new way of living, this new approach to things that like the law says this, but you make it even harder. Like whose authority are you preaching in? And Jesus said, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. Whose authority did John the Baptist baptize in? And the Pharisees, they kind of leave the discussion. They're gathered around huddling and they're thinking, okay, like if, if we say that it wasn't God's authority, like the people are going to get mad at us. The people, they, John is like this folk hero. They're going to get upset at us. But if we say it was God's authority, then Jesus is then going to ask us, well, why didn't you allow John to baptize you? So I, w- what do we do? One Pharisee actually spoke up and said, I think that if we say it wasn't by God's authority, that the people are actually going to stone us and kill us. So they talk a little more. They come back to Jesus. <coughs> See, Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, then neither will I tell you. And he walked his way. You see, Jesus knew there were some questions you shouldn't answer. There are some questions that you might even know the answer to. I mean, did Jesus know whose authority he was teaching in? You awake? Of course he did. He knew whose authority he was teaching in. It was his father. But he knew some questions don't need to be answered. Some questions never deserve an answer, even if I know the answer, because of how they're asked or who's asking them or where they're being asked. Some of you need to get this point. Some questions that are being posed to you, maybe on social media or Twitter, are questions that don't deserve an answer, even if you know the right answer. Jesus never allowed himself to be dragged into debates that distracted him from primary issues. And finally, they didn't judge non-Christians 
for behaving like non-Christians. They didn't judge people who didn't subscribe to the Christian faith as though they had subscribed to the Christian faith. They didn't treat people that way. And, and now just imagine this. Jesus is the son of God. He came to bring about this incredible gospel, this good news message. And he would spend time with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees, the religious right of his day, would come to him and say, Jesus, why are you spending time with tax collectors? Are you telling us it's okay to cheat? Why are you spending so much time with sinners? Are you condoning sin? I mean, imagine being Jesus and getting that question. Like, seriously? Sin is going to kill me. Sin is going to nail my hands and feet to a cross. You're asking me if I condone sin? Absolutely not. I'm here to take sin away. I'm just bringing the message to the people that need it the most. And I wish you would do the same. They didn't judge non-Christians for behaving like non-Christians. Here's what Paul taught us. He was asked the question, what business is it for us to judge outsiders? And when he says outside is there, that, that language, that, that's his language of describing there are people who are inside faith, who believe, who've ascribed to this faith, who have ascribed to believe, and there are people who are outside the faith, who haven't believed yet. So what business is it of us insiders to judge outsiders who haven't ascribed to that faith, to that set of rules? We would be so much better off if we just policed our own behavior. You never find that Jesus policed and judged those who weren't Christians and who hadn't decided to believe. But you do see him come against often the people in the group that did believe and that said they believed and ascribed to those set of rules. Now, real quickly, we're going to look at two passages of Scripture. We'll go through this as quick as we can. I'm going to pick one that talks about kind of the life of Jesus and how this illustrates the point I'm making, and then one from, um, from the Apostle Paul. We're going to begin in Matthew 5. Jesus says this, he's talking now to a group of Christians, that you are the light of the world. And the implication here is that the world is dark and that God has put a flashlight in the world and you are that flashlight. That the world around you is completely dark and it's kind of overwhelmed with darkness, but that I have given it hope and I have given it a light and that if you ascribe to this belief, if you're an insider, if you're a Christian, you are that light. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And if you've ever flown in a plane at night, you know what I'm talking about. You, you, you're flying around and it's completely dark and you can barely see anything. And then you come up on a city and it just, it illuminates everything. It can't be hidden. It just overpowers the darkness with light. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so it gives light to everyone in the dark house. So people are listening to Jesus and going, okay, like, Jesus, let me write this down. What's that main point again? And Christians, especially Christians here who maybe even be conservative, of which I am one, listen to how he goes on. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, others that are in the darkness, in such a way that they may see your, and I want you to say that bold word with me together, that they may see your, not your Facebook post, not your Twitter feed, not your cultural grenade that you threw out there to make a point. Not you standing on a box, taking a stand, preaching what's right. He said, you can be a light in the world. You can make a difference in, in the world that's dark. How? By your good deeds. Not by making a billboard. But by your good deeds. 
You can be a light that attracts a dark world to it, just like uh, th- those, like a light that attracts bugs at night. You can be a light that attracts people to you. Do you want to be a light? Do you want to be a light that makes a difference? He says, here's how you do it. Your good deeds. You've got to live your life in such a way that your good deeds, that they can see God through your good deeds and begin to connect the dots. And ultimately then, they glorify your Father in heaven. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, you need to conduct your morality in, in, in a certain way. You need to, you need to have a, a better marriage. You need to have better kids. You need to be ethical. You need to say what you say and mean it. You need to stick to the truth and be honest. You need to not steal. You need to not be dishonest. You need to not be deceitful. You live your life in such a way that the people around you go, you know, I, I don't know that I believe what they believe, but I really do like spending time with them. I don't know that, that I want to believe what they believe and maybe even go to their church, but man, I hope my daughter marries one of them someday because when they say yes just to you in marriage, they mean it and they stick through. They honor their commitments. They tell the truth. They don't hurt other people. They're kind and they're generous and, and they, they handle their money differently and they're involved in the community differently and, and they, they talk about people differently. Like, like There's just something different about them. I don't know that I believe what they believe but I really do like having them around. I wouldn't mind working for one. I wouldn't mind employing a bunch. I wouldn't mind spending time with them. He said, you want to make a difference in the world? You do it by your good deeds, not by making a point, not by posting some ridiculous statement, not by making some ridiculous stand, not by standing for what's right and offending everyone else around you. You see, that's easy. Making a difference is hard. But making a difference changes lives. Making a difference attracts those who are in the darkness to your light. Jesus said, you want to learn how to change the world? (coughs) Be the light. Make a point by making a difference. You are the light in a dark world. If you're a Christian, if you believe Jesus, who he says he was, if you ascribe to this faith and this set of rules, you are a light in a dark world. And the way you conduct yourself, the way you live, the way you you, you kind of walk out your character will show the difference to the people around you and make a difference in this world. Of course, Jesus could read the minds of the people around him. So you can imagine the people are hearing this and the really religious people, the Pharisees, are like, okay, Jesus, but, but what about holiness? Right? What about, what about being holy? And what about always doing what's right? Jesus says this. Do not think. Because he knows what they're thinking. So imagine talking with Jesus. Like, Don't think what you're about to think. Like, well, I was thinking that. That's amazing. <clears throat> Don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish the law. I've not abandoned the law. It's not like I'm against the law. He said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. It's not an either or. It's a both and. We can make a point, but we make a point by making a difference. When you reverse the two, you never make a difference. You'll make a point, but there will be no difference. I want you to make a difference. And when you make a difference, that's your point. And you can change the world. You can become a little bit attractional to where people want to know what is so different about you and what's so different about your kids and what's so different about your family, what's so different about your company 
and how you run things? What's so different about your employers and how you, or your employees and how you treat people? Paul says it this way, and he says this to Christians. This is in Colossians. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. He says, be wise. This is the Apostle Paul talking to Christians. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. And that's his words again. There are those who are outside the faith and those who are inside the faith. It's not like good versus bad. This isn't good people and bad people. This is those who ascribe to faith and those who haven't. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of of every opportunity. We're basically saying in any opportunity you have to have a conversation with somebody who is outside the faith about faith, be careful how you talk. Be careful how the conversation goes. Be wise in what you're about to say. Let your conversations, and Christians, hang on to this. Let your conversations be full of what? Full of grace. Full of grace. Do you know what that Greek word for full means? Full. Like, like full, like to the top full, like so much that it's almost about to spill out. Let your conversations be so full of grace that people are wondering, what about the salt? What about the difference? What, what, what about like the truth? I think that's almost too much grace. Paul said, let your conversations be so full of grace. Hang on, hang on. But what about, what about, holiness. And, and, and what about like, we got to get America back to what America was. But what about like, we've got to make a point. He says, hang on, let your conversation be full of grace. Or in other words, you need so much grace, so much grace that it looks like it's about to spill out. And when it's just about to spill out, then you sprinkle in a little salt, just a little bit of salt. You see, you know what I find interesting? From generation after generation after generation, do you know what the American evangelical church has done? Our conversations have been full of salt. You're wrong. You're evil. You're doing everything wrong, and you're believing the wrong way, and you're voting the wrong way, and your ideas about that policy, and your ideas about this are wrong, and you're wrong, and I'm against you. But if you ask Jesus for forgiveness, you can become part of me. Don't you want to do that? You see, our conversations have been full of salt. And at the very end, we try to sprinkle in a little grace and hope it makes a difference. And Paul said, no, no, no. Full of grace. And then you can sprinkle in a little truth. And then you can sprinkle in a little holiness. And that grace and that salt mix, that's what makes a difference. You know how you become a Christian? You became a Christian because somebody flooded you with grace, not salt. Someone saw you where they are, and they brought a message to you that was full of hope and full of love and full of life. And you said, you know what? There's something different about this. I don't believe what they believe, but, but I want to be like you because you live your life differently, and you act differently, and you talk differently, and you love your kids so much, and, and you and your wife have a great relationship. I want that. How do I get that? So you just have to believe. And sometimes you're around them and you're a little convicted, not because they make you feel guilty, but because you're just so good at feeling guilty for the things you've done. And then you realized, if I just give it to Jesus, that goes away. And I've got a new start and I've got a new life. And I know now how to love people and care for people and treat my wife and treat my employees. 
when your conversations are full of grace and seasoned with salt. Now we're going to fast forward a few hundred years. A few hundred years go by and the Christians, after Jesus died and was resurrected and went to heaven, after Paul was died and beheaded by Nero, the Christians started to get this right. And the Roman world suffered three plagues. Some people think it was four, some people say two, but most people would agree that there was three major plagues to hit this Roman world around the Mediterranean Rim. And they were so bad, so bad that thousands and thousands of people were dying. <clears throat> so much so that it's actually recorded how people began to escape and leave the cities. The rich people would leave first because they had the money and they'd get out. <clears throat> the next it would be the pagan priests. They would leave. And last, the people that were left were the poor people, the ordinary people. They were just left to die. They were left to rot. They were left and abandoned by their faith to die in these streets. And some people think that the rise of Christianity was really how Christians began to act and how Christians kind of, kind of acted towards those who were left. That, that the success of Christianity actually happened at this moment when these plagues hit and how they reacted to it. You see, the Christians, they didn't leave and abandon the cities. They would stay and they would nurture and they would care for their own. And after they would care for their own, they would go into the streets and they would find those who had been abandoned. They would find the babies who were left for dead and they would bring them in and adopt them and nurture them. They would find the children who were left abandoned and they would bring them in into their families and adopt them and nurture them and care for them. And people started surviving the plague. People started to make it to the end. People's lives were forever changed because Christians decided it was by my good deeds that I could make a difference. If I can be the light of the world here, what would it do? And they began to be the light. They didn't fear death. When, when, they be, you know, when you believe Jesus, you no longer fear death. You anticipate the afterlife. These pagan priests, they did not. Because in the pagan religion, there was no love between God and people. <clears throat> the pagan gods abused the people and required horrible sacrifices from the people. So if the pagan gods didn't love people, why do I love people? They just ran away. And in a short period of time, Christianity began to rise and gain momentum. And all of these people that were left abandoned began to turn to the Christian faith and began being lights in their own world. And the Roman Empire was completely changed from the inside out. I mean, it's an incredible story. A few emperors later, though, a few emperors later, a man comes along named Julian. Emperor Julian was the apostate. That's what they called him. Because Emperor Julian decided, you know what? I, I, we got to get Rome back to what Rome was. Rome was founded on this pagan religion with these pagan gods. We need, and you're going to hate me for saying this, we need to get Rome back to, to what our forefathers intended it to be. Because Rome was pagan, and we've got to make it pagan. So Emperor Julian decided to institute paganism again, and he would erect these temples to pagan gods, and, and he would fill it with these pagan priests and, and, and as he began to do this, he began seeing that they, they weren't gaining any traction, that, that, that this pagan religion wasn't taking off, that, that people weren't converting to paganism, and he couldn't figure out why. And he began to write a letter to, his, to this group of pagan priests who were kind of, kind of carrying out his mission to restore Rome back to its greatness. And we have a snippet of this letter, and it's really quite incredible. I'm going to read it to you. Here's what he said. This was written about 355 to 365 A.D. It said, recent Christian growth is caused by the moral character, even if pretend, and by their benevolence towards Christians. He's going, okay, we have a problem here. We're not gaining any ground. We're not gaining any momentum because the, the, these Christians, their moral character, and, and, and really, I think it's fake because nobody loves their wife that much. 
Nobody cares for their kids like these people care for their kids. I think that, I think that the, everything they're doing is fake. But even if it's fake, they're so good at it, we can't gain any momentum. I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by our priests, again, because the priests didn't care for people, because their gods didn't care for people. So as the priests continued to neglect people and continued to neglect the poor, they weren't being cared for by their priests. But these impious Galileans, that's what they called Christians, because Jesus was Jesus of Galilee, a Galilean, so were his followers. These impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. But it gets worse. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. And why would anyone want to convert to our pagan religion where they're not being cared for and they're not being treated kindly and there's no benevolence shown them when they can continue to be a part of this Christian religion where all they're shown is love and kindness and treated like people with dignity? We're not making a difference. Everyone can see that people lack aid from us but that they're getting all this aid from these Christians, from these Galileans. Do you know why the West was won? Do you know why Rome finally switched over to Christianity? It wasn't because of preaching. And I like preaching. It's what I do. I look forward to this every time I get a chance to. But that's not what made a difference. It was because a group of Christians got together and decided, we're not going to make a point we want to make a difference. And it might be, take a little longer and it might be a little harder and, and, and it might make us a little bit more uncomfortable. It might be a little bit messier. But we're going to be the light of the world in this dark place. We're not going to fear death. We're not going to abandon people, but we're going to be kind and we're going to be benevolent and we're going to be generous and we're going to love people and we're going to care for each other. We're going to nurture the sick. We're going to care for the wounded. We're going to treat our wives like they have dignity and respect. We're going to treat our children like they are gifts from God and not tools to be used at our disposal. We're going to treat people like they matter. And by their good deeds, the West was won. And the Roman world became a Christian nation. Not by standing on a soapbox and standing for what's right and drawing a line in the sand. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I don't disagree with that theology. I don't even disagree really with the heart of that. I, I, I get that. I believe that. But when you make a stand, you're making a point. When you serve and you show good deeds, you're making a difference. And I believe, I believe as Christians, we have an opportunity. More so, I believe as a church, we have the responsibility to be a light in this world and to make a difference and stop trying so hard to make a point. Stop being a church that's so comfortable throwing those grenades out on our culture and, and making a stand and offending everyone around us because we'd rather be known as the church that's against than the church that represents a God that is so for you that he would send his son to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, to be raised again, to set you free from sin. You see, we're not going to be a church that's against. We want to be a church that's for. We're not going to be a church that tries so hard to make a point. We want to be a church that tries every single day to make a difference. So here's what we're going to do. <clears throat> and here's what we'll continue to do. Number one, taking a public stand on anything the public wants us to take a stand on is neither necessary nor wise. 
And that's why we oftentimes don't talk about current events because it's not necessary and it's not wise. It's not that important. That makes a point. It doesn't make a difference. We're not going to fear guilt by association. We're not. I told you this morning, I'm going to offend Republicans and I'm going to offend Democrats. I'm going to offend liberals and I'm going to offend conservatives. I'll have crazy people speak and I'll have you know, nice people speak. It's equal opportunity offending for me. But I'm not concerned about guilt by association because Jesus wasn't concerned about it. And I don't think you should be concerned about it. If you fear guilt by association, do you know what you become? You don't become a church on a mission. You become a church of isolation. Number three, <clears throat> we're going to, we're not, sorry, we are not going to police the behavior of people who don't believe what we believe. And you might hear this oftentimes when I speak. You'll hear me say something like this, like if you're not a Christian, this really doesn't apply to you. If you're not a Christian, you don't have to do this. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it's good for you to get to hear me say this. There are certain things that we talk about that are written specifically towards Christians. The New Testament was written specifically towards Christians, people who believe in Jesus, who've ascribed to this faith and ascribed to those set of rules. So oftentimes I get to say, this really doesn't apply to you. You can do it and it'll work and it'll add benefit, but you don't have to do it. But Christians, we have to do it. We've agreed. We've put ourselves under these rules. We've committed our life to this. You don't have an out. I mean, let's be honest. Most Christians don't even act like Christians, right? So why do we continue to accuse non-Christians of not acting like Christians? They're not supposed to. We are not going to police the behavior of people who don't believe what we believe. But we will police the behavior of people who do believe what we believe. Number four, when politically and cultural issues interfere with biblical teaching, we are going to talk about it. We don't shy away from the difficult things. And if you don't believe me, a few weeks back, go back and listen to our message on the new rules of love, sex, and dating. I don't shy away from the uncomfortable. I don't shy away from the difficult. But I will speak about it when culture begins to, to come kind of at odds with what the Bible teaches. And then we'll begin to shine light on it. We don't shy away from it. I have no problem teaching on what the scripture says is clear. But we are not here to make a point. We are here to make a difference. I'm going to say things that Republicans love, and I'm going to say things that Democrats love, and I'm probably going to say things that they disagree with. But whatever lines up, and that's okay, because really that's not my agenda. Whatever lines up with the scripture, whatever is clear in the Bible, that's what we teach. We will not shy away from the hard issues. But we will do our best, regardless of what culture says, to teach what the Bible teaches. The last thing is we're not always going to get it right. We're not. There are times we haven't gotten it right. There are times we've made mistakes and we might continue to make mistakes, but we will do our best. And with your support and your help, we will continue to do our best to teach the, what the Bible teaches, to make a difference instead of making a point, to never police those whose behavior doesn't align with our own behavior because they haven't agreed to the same set of values that we've agreed to. We won't always get it right, but we will do our best. You've heard me say this before. As a church, we run to the mess. We don't avoid it. We don't run away from it. We run to the mess. When we see people that are hurting, when we see people that are in need, that, that is, is what we are here to do, to help and to nurture and to care for. As a church, we will continue to run to the mess because it's the mission God gave us. 
As a matter of fact, we have people that come, sometimes email like, what's your policy on this? Or, or what do you guys, what, what, what do you, like, what's the, your stand on this? Have you ever written anything down? I, I'll, I'll let you know this. Our only policy is that we have no policies. We don't. So oftentimes we get asked questions in email, and instead of sending back a policy, because that's easy, and that just makes a point, we often get an email that sends back, says, hey, why don't you come and have a cup of coffee? Why don't you come and let's have a conversation and let's talk? And that's messier, and it takes longer, and it's a little bit more uncomfortable but it's way more relational and it builds bridges with people rather than burning them down. And we would rather build those bridges than isolate ourselves away and say, hey, we're here to make a point. When really we believe with all our hearts, we're simply here to make a difference. So let me say this as we close. Thank you for allowing us to do that. Thank you for being a part of us as we do that. And let me encourage you to continue to do the same thing to continue to be people that would say, you know what, I would rather be a light in this dark world and make a difference than I would stand on my soapbox and make a point and never, ever change anyone's life. And we don't do it to change lives. Jesus said that's like the natural byproduct. If you live this way, if you live like a light, people will be attracted to you and they'll want to know what's different about you and then you can make a difference in their life. That's just a byproduct of being like Jesus, of being a light in this dark world. So would you do that? Would you allow us to continue to do that? Would you partner with us? And would you be a light in the world? Would you separate yourself from hate? Would you separate yourself from making a point? Would you separate yourself from all of those annoying conversations on Facebook and Instagram and any other social media platform you're on where people just spew hate to make a point? And say, well, I'm right. It says it right here. And would you treat people a little more like Jesus did? Say, no, I'd rather make a difference. And it might take a little longer and it might get a little dirtier. But my difference will make a point later. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person here, Lord. I thank you uh, for this incredible message, God. That I, and I know that it can be so hard for us because our, we hold our political beliefs so close, God. But I pray that regardless of where we stand on that issue, whether we're on the right or the left or, or we're somewhere in between or maybe, God, we're just out in left field and we don't even know what we believe. I pray that we would all adopt the heart of Jesus to be a light in a dark world, to just continue to live as Jesus had instructed us to live. And by doing so, God, we can make a difference. I pray that we would see the value in making a difference over making a point and that we would live that way, that we would be wise in our conversations that we would be full of grace with just a season of salt. I pray that you'd give us wisdom on how to do this and the courage to do it, God, even when it's challenging. And I thank you for finally sending us summer in this awesome heat. And I pray that this week of July 4th would be an incredible time, God, for us to spend with our families and hopefully cool off in some body of water somewhere. In Jesus' name, amen.